0: Happy sweater
1: sweater weather! It's a frigid sixty-two degrees outside. <laughs> um, it's great to see you. So, just by way of reminder, I know there's a few of you that have said uh, some things this morning. That we have a members' meeting right after our service today. That meeting is open for anyone, so you don't have to be a member to like show up and listen and observe the meeting. Um, when it's time to vote don't do that. But otherwise, yeah. Um, so yeah. I'm glad y'all are here this morning. It's always a delight and a joy to get to worship with y'all. Um, and we're going to start once again with a little bit of Nietzsche this morning, because we've been on a little bit of a Nietzsche role, and I figured, why not? Let's keep going. Frederick Nietzsche suggested that to live and to be an unjust human is just one and the same thing, that it was impossible to go about life without also being unjust. He understood the world to be a place where life inherently depends on the destruction of other life. So little fish eat plankton. Big fish eat little fish. Seals eat big fish. Great whites eat seals and bacteria feed on the carcasses of all of them. He believed the nature of the world was rooted in something like the survival of the fittest and at its root, life is sustained by competition and by conquest. He therefore advocated for our acceptance and embrace of this reality and to enter into the reality that the world is an injurious, violent, exploitative, and destructive place and that in order to get ahead in that world, you will have to be an injurious, violent, exploitative, and destructive type of person. To make it plain, Nietzsche believed that nice guys finish last, to quote Green Day, and freeing ourselves from a religious morality that held the cross at its center would enable stronger men, yes, he was a misogynist, to ascend to power over other weaker men, and that the human race would begin to move forward in the next stage of evolution as this happened. What I think that Nietzsche makes so plain to us is the cold, harsh reality of our world because we can stand back and horror all we want, but is this not so much about how the world actually works? I was talking to a friend of mine a few weeks ago, and they had entered a PhD program. It's actually the same friend I mentioned last week. Um, they had entered a, entered a PhD program in the Northwest and had entered into this with eyes wide open, ready to, to dive in and study evolutionary biology, and what they were met with, with the politics of academia. And they very quickly found out that, oh, no, no, we're not really concerned about research. We're not really concerned about truth. What really matters here, me as a grad student, is for me to pad your resume. They were discouraged um, at that world. This reality, this survival of the fittest, this idea that we are in constant competition with one another, this dynamic is what the New Testament describes as the present evil age, the old creation. Paul calls it the flesh, the logic of this world. And it stirs up, it radiates, and it perpetuates the enslaving and oppressive dynamics of evil. It's the dynamics of sin and death and a world of sin and death. And we call it the hustle or the grind or whatever thing we want to paint it with. And we stand back from across the globe as we watch in horror as this dynamic is playing itself out in Gaza right now where a blood feud has boiled over into war that is constant. And this, in this instance, the local, very real, existential threat from both sides by someone who lives merely blocks away from them has not just planted seeds of war, has not just caused tens of thousands of innocent people to die. It has planted seeds much worse than that. It has taught an entire generation how to hate the other. It is taught an entire entire people how that those people are not really fully human people. They are our enemies. And the seeds of ethnic hatred have been planted in the hearts of children. And for many the only way to imagine a world of flourishing is in the eradication of the other. It's called genocide, ladies and gentlemen. And I want to suggest, because Jesus suggests, that the antidote to the present evil age is crucifixion and resurrection. It's not conquest. It's not victory. It's not bombs. In this story of Jesus that we come back to week after week, we became human. God became human, sorry. Subjecting God's self to shame subjecting God's self to humiliation, subjecting God's self to death in love for a humanity that did not love God back. A humanity that was perpetuating the dynamics of the present evil age, dynamics that God himself is opposed to. A humanity that set themselves by their own choosing against God. And yet Jesus joined them became one of them, died for them, to save them. And this is the story that Jesus invites us into, beckoning us to follow him and make his story our story. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it if anyone wants to come after me, if you want to follow me, if you want to walk alongside me, then you're going to go where I'm going. And in Luke's gospel and in Matthew, Mark, and John, it's the same thing. If you want to go where I'm going, you need to understand where our journey ends here. It ends in crucifixion. It ends in the death of the self. It ends in death and resurrection. So we're in our year at the table, um, and we're talking about how Jesus invites us all to the table. And today, what we're talking about is how we get to the table, and then suddenly we look around and realize, oh, man, this table's (laughs) cross-shaped. Oh, what did I get myself into? Jesus makes his invitation plain. If you're going to follow him, you're going to follow him into a cross-shaped life. If the world is really actually characterized by competition and conquest with injurious, violent, exploitative, and destructive patterns of living, then Jesus says that we, those of us who are seated at his table together, will be God's no to that way of the world. And that it will likely cost us. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. So be like this, because this is what God is like. Be this way, because this is how God shows up and loves. And then he tells you, verse 6, Jesus, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be seized, violently taken hold of. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, the lowest of slaves, and being born in the likeness of human beings and being found in the appearance as a human, he humbled himself in obedience, even to the point of death. Death on a cross, a shameful death, a humiliating death, disgraceful and painful death. And because of this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In another place, uh, Paul's writing to a hot mess of a church in Corinth, and he says it this way. He will point to the cross and our proclamation of the cross, both in our language and in our behavior, And he will say that this dynamic, the dynamic of the cross, a a crucified life, a cross-shaped life is the power of God at work in the world. It is the wrench that's being thrown into the evil machine that keeps grinding along. And a cross-shaped life is summarized here by Paul as doing nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility, considering one another as more important than yourselves. This is not rocket science. We could have this lesson with our kiddos in the back. (laughs) Treat other people well. Treat other people the way that you would want to be treated. This is divine love. And not merely look out for your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Nelson Mandela was captivated by this ethic which burst forth into the world in a way that we don't get to experience very often, in a way that made substantial difference in the way that an entire country operated. In the face of bitter racism in South Africa's apartheid, Mandela embodied the cross, choosing weakness, choosing forgiveness. And he proclaimed the cross. In his Christmas address in 1990, Nelson Mandela said, we... Both me and those who are trying to oppress me, we must strive to be moved by a generosity of spirit that will enable us to outgrow the hatred and the conflicts of the past. Oppressed, victimized, imprisoned, Mandela chose a way forward that embraced grace, generosity, and forgiveness rather than retribution, revenge, or power. The way of Jesus is not the way of power. Despite what TikTok suggests, it's not the way of influence either. Insert laughter. Thank you. It's not the way of coercion. It's not the way of demand. Instead, it's a generous way. It's a gracious way. We're not invited to call or called by God to win. (laughs) Hear that again. Jesus is not inviting you to win. Jesus is not inviting you to be right. Jesus doesn't say, "Hey, if you want to come and follow me, then you have to win the arguments. You have to win the wars. You have to win the culture. You have to win the whatever it is that we think we are supposed to be winning." We're called to love. We're called to love. This is what the church for the last five years has so publicly gotten wrong. When our LGBTQ brothers and sisters know where we stand biblically on homosexuality, but do not know love, we are doing this wrong. When our neighbors can go down our political ideological list and say, oh, yeah, the church believes this, the church believes this, the church believes this, but they do not feel or experience the love of the church, we are doing it wrong. We are called to love, to forgive, and to heal. And this is what is so unchristian about Christian nationalism, despite the title and the growing misogynistic movements that are attached with it, it sees God's vision of the church as a vision of dominance, influence, and power. But Jesus makes it plain that anyone who's truly interested in following him is going to take a path of weakness, smallness, and a willingness to set aside their power and even their lives for the sake of others. For many of us in this room, so much of our own experienced pain is tied to religious institutions that got caught up into this intoxication of power. Where a vision of winning, dominance, and influence push out a vision of small, quiet faithfulness. And if we are not careful, our danger will be to step over the line and go to the other side and do the exact same thing to them. We are called to love, to be a people of love. This means we wake up each and every day choosing to exist in a new mode of being. So there's a a New Testament scholar um, who specializes in Paul who says it this way. His name is Tim Gombas. Jeff is very happy right now. (laughs) The social entity on earth that is claimed by the cross and in which, sorry, the church is the social entity on earth that is claimed by the cross and in which every member owns and claims the cross as their identity. That we are a cross-shaped community called to live cross-shaped lives of cross-shaped love in the world. And this means we are living new modes of being. But the, the reality is, is that we as individuals are the ones that are responsible for this. We individually and personally are invited to begin to embody and inhabit the reality of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus, right? And we can talk in, like, grandiose ways of, like, man, you should move to wherever and die while spreading the God. Like, okay, fair enough. Those are fine things. But can we start with just, like, forgiving people who, like, cut us off in traffic, (laughs) right? Right? or maybe letting them in in the first place. Like, I feel like there are like way smaller things that we could probably start with and we don't have to change and reorient everything about our lives. But this new mode of being is what we're baptized into. When you were baptized, you stepped into Jesus's death and you were buried in death to the old way of being. And you were raised up by the power of forgiveness and God's grace in the spirit that's alive in those waters to be a new creature, a new creation who embodies as a forerunner of God's kingdom this new creation dynamic. And so we operate out of self-giving love rather than self-interest. Confession of our own lack of love rather than hiding. Forgiveness, when others don't love us and sin against us and actually really harm us rather than exacting revenge, harboring bitterness, or demanding retribution. Jesus does none of this and invites us to do the same. And can we now acknowledge that this is hard? (laughs) And can I actually suggest that this is impossible? that apart from God's miraculous resurrecting spirit at work among us as human beings, I don't think we can just hear Brandon's eloquent speech, and it is eloquent, by the way. It's fantastic. And walk out of here and go, oh, I've never realized, love my neighbor, got it. What a new revelation. That, no, 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 this actually takes the resurrecting power of God to work in us and bring us to life in a way that will keep us from acting in ways that we otherwise normally would want to act, right? If Nietzsche's right about the natural order of things, then we are being called and invited into living a way that is outside of nature, a supernatural ethic and a supernatural way of living, driven by God's love towards God's love on behalf of the world. So I uh, very rarely get my hair cut. I normally do it on my own because haircuts are just stupid expensive. Um, And y'all are like, oh, that explains a lot. You cut your own hair. Got it. Got it. But I got my hair cut because I was doing someone else's wedding. I'm like, okay, I can't be that guy, right? And (laughs) y'all are welcome. There's some of y'all that are getting married next week in here. And yeah, y'all are welcome. I got my hair cut and we'll do it again for y'all. Anyway, so I'm talking to my barber and we, uh, you know, he's like, What do you do? And I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm a pastor, and I'm in this barber shop. It's a cool barber shop. There's like fancy whiskeys and bourbon set out, and there's like blaring rap music. And I'm like, cool, cool, cool. What's up, what's up? You know, trying to fit in. And he's like, oh, so what do you do? I'm a pastor. And the guy then is very interested in this. It was a very interesting interaction because he didn't react the way that I expected. But several times during the conversation, he dropped several F-bombs. And was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, my friend, can we agree that like, the syllables coming out of your mouth are the least of God's concern? Um, but that God actually cares more about how you treat other people than he cares about the things that you're saying and what sounds are echoing out of your mouth. And we then talked about rap music and how it was ungodly. And I'm like, this is a weird conversation. I think rap music is actually just fine with God. But anyways. So we get to this point in the conversation and he says, hey, so like, what, yeah, this is like, he's intrigued. Like, I sound very different than his own personal experience at some of his churches with some of his pastors. And he's like, so what do you like, what, is your, what do you preach about? Like, what do you try to tell your people? And I'm like, you're asking me to summarize all of my sermons in a sentence. <laughs> thank you all for understanding the like, (laughs) wait, what do I say here? And um, it came to me actually shockingly easily. And I hope that this is what y'all hear week in and week out in some form or another in, in all of what we do on a Sunday morning. Because this is what Jesus shows us over and over and what his story makes so clear, that God is for you and God is with you. God is for you and God is with you. Think about that for a second. And then hear Jesus' words again. If God is really actually for me, and God is really actually with me, then I can pick up my cross and I can go anywhere and know that I'm going to be okay. That this is going to end in resurrection and not in death. That this is going to end in liberation and not in destruction. That this is going to end in God's care for me. If God is for me, then who can stand against me? If God is with me, then I do not need to leverage, coerce, or manipulate. And then here we cut down to the heart of it. I think when we hear Jesus's words here of, hey, take up your cross and follow me, I think a lot of us are rightly like freaked out by this. Uh, And some unhealthy things have been done with this. But putting those to the side for just a second can we acknowledge that so much of how this world operates and its modes of self-preservation comes down to control. And so much of our fear of taking up our cross and actually really following Jesus is that means we have to relinquish our control. We want to be in control. And Jesus is saying, let go. We want to control our lives, as silly as that is in reality. There's so much about our lives that is outside of our control, and yet we obsess, I obsess, over trying to control and curate our lives. And Jesus says, let your life go so you can fully find it. Live as a full human being. We want to control others. I mean, maybe y'all do. I don't ever do that. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't control others, follow me. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Don't control others, love others. Don't merely look out for your own interests, but consider others' uh, interests as important as your own. Like this language here in Greek is very strong. Elevate uh, your neighbor's problems as seriously as you would elevate your own problems, Being like Jesus, joined together with others for and with them and letting go of our desire to control. Is this not exactly what Jesus does? He joins us. He is with us. He loves us. He works towards us and for us, and yet he never once tries to control anyone. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Hey, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God, eternal life? Sell everything you've got. The guy walks away, poor, no, 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 wait, stop, come back, hold on. He leaves others where they're at, as they are, and he loves them that way. He does not insist or demand that they be any different until they start uh, religiously oppressing people. Then he has some things to say. But even then, he doesn't control. Even then, as the religious oppression is killing him, he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we're promised that in this letting go, we will find life. And a giant spanner wrench will be thrown into the world of sin and death. And we will stop living in the cycles of destruction and blood feuds and perpetuating the violence and the evil and the sin and the death that exists in this world, both here in our community and out there as we go out into the world. At Jesus' table, communion is our goal. Being in rich, deep communion with God and with one another is the goal. And Jesus assures us that we will not get there for ourselves or anyone else by winning, by being right, by having better theology, through exerting power and influence, or fear. You better believe in God or else. Or morality, you better behave this way or God feels this way about you. God's kingdom does not come about by control or coercion, but it comes about through cross-shaped love. Because that's God's love. That's what God loves like. And if God is love, then that is what love is like. And so in cross-shaped love, we find the end to all resentment, all retaliation, and the end to need, of the need to control. And we end the cycle And this is who God is. It's who we're meant to be. And when we live like this, when we live cross-shaped lives and live as cross-shaped people, we show the world who God is and what God is like. And can you hear how refreshing that might actually be to a world that is starving for divine love? Can you hear how inviting that might actually be for a world that needs to know how much God actually really cares about them? There's a real question on the table for us here because all of this sounds really nice, but for most of us, the real question is, can I trust God here? Because that's at the heart of the issue. There's so much to be afraid of, but at the root of letting go and giving up control, we have to answer this question, is God really trustworthy? Can I trust that if I relinquish control, I'm still going to be okay that even if my enemies persecute me and kill me, God will raise me back up. This makes things like weakness, forgiveness, vulnerability, generosity, giving up power really scary, but also incredibly subversive acts of faith. uh, Subversive acts of redemption, where we put Jesus at the center of our lives and we cast ourselves upon God's care and mercy. We're pushing all of our chips in, Uh, unless you're not a gambler, which God maybe frowns upon that. I don't know. So one of our founding pastors, uh, Zach McCoy, says it this way. This means staking your life on Jesus. I love that language so much. I've carried that language with me for the last seven years since he first heard it, said it from this stage. We are a group of people who are staking our lives on Jesus. Jesus. can we acknowledge that what makes this possible is the knowledge that God actually really loves you? This is not about duty. This is not about obedience. This is not about you'd better do this or else. Rather, this is all motivated in God's love for you. In the security of being loved by God, we can let go and we can stake our lives on Jesus. So I'm going to close with uh, an illustration that I've used about 35 times now, but it's just so perfect and I love it so much, so I'm going to continue to um, push it on you. Uh, One of my favorite films that no one else will like, likely, in this room is Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. It's a very weird film, it's super artsy, uh, but what it does is it depicts this idea of Nietzsche's nature. And, and God's cross-shaped love in uh, these two parents. And it's experienced uh, from a child's perspective. So it's a, a, a son who's grown up and is now reflecting on his father's death, and he's looking back on his life from a child being, being raised into an adult. And his, his father is this demanding, oppressive, like, no, no, you're going to get it right and do it again until it's right sort of person, a very harsh person. And his mom is this carefree, loving, delightful, joy-filled, even when oppressed, even when abused, even when shouted at person. And she makes him feel safe and seen and loved. The film opens up with these words, and they're words that I come back to over and over and over again because they are so poignant. And I want to leave you here with these words this morning. The nuns taught us there are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. It accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. It accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. And here's the invitation that convicts my soul at a very deep level. It finds a reason to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it and love Smiling through all things. Let's pray.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.